Yes, I did have to raise the podium just a little bit. It is good to be with you again as we open God's Word and as we think about, think about life that we have in Jesus and what that life looks like, what it means for us tonight to look at being a living sacrifice. We think back to the Old Testament, all sorts of language about sacrifice, but, but sacrifice by, by that picture is something that's dead. And yet the New Testament calls us to be living sacrifices. And so it will require some, some history and some background from the Old Testament, but also an entirely new perspective as we look at the new and dig into this idea of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, sacrifice is associated, of course, with, with all of the sensory uh, input that the Jews would have experienced in the temple rituals and in the tabernacle. And you can imagine you go into either one of those settings and it's, it's something marvelous to behold. There, there's, there's gold everywhere. There's, there's embroidery in the curtains. There's, there's bronze. There's all of these things that you could see. What would you hear as you walked into the temple complex or the tabernacle? You would hear all the people coming and going. You would hear perhaps uh, voices speaking contritely as they reflected upon what they'd done. There would, be, there would be priests instructing people in the ways of God. There would be all this conversation. You'd hear the animals, wouldn't you? You'd hear all the, the animals as they're being moved around in different places through the, through the process, ready to be sacrificed there on the altar you definitely feel, you'd feel the heat, you'd feel the grime and the dirt. You would, you'd look down at some point in the process and you would see blood covering your own hands as, as you were the one who actually slit the throat of the animal that was being brought in sacrifice. All of your senses are involved. The, uh, the people who study such things, the, the biologists and the doctors, as they reflect on the different senses they say it takes, uh, I've got it written down so that I can be sure, four light receptors for the mechanics of the eye to work so that we can take this spectrum of light that's out there and our brains can interpret that into something we recognize as sight. And uh, it, takes, it takes seven sensors in the body for touch to begin to work properly so that we can feel those things. But the other senses, specifically smell, they say it takes about a thousand receptors and a thousand different components in the, in the olfactory system for that sense to work. And because it's so complex and so interconnected with, with everything that's going on, it leaves a certain impression. And there are, are smell memories that, that we can reach deeply, uh, reach back deeply to. Do you remember what your grandparents' house smelled like? Do you remember going back to some of those places that are, are deeply entrenched and etched into your memory. Maybe a, a certain scent that someone used to wear. Or for me, maybe the, the, the smell of, of my grandfather's pipe tobacco uh, from being a little boy and he still smoked pipe. And you just you catch a whiff of those going down the street or, or in someone else's home. It can be an entirely different setting, but you smell that and your senses immediately bring your mind back to a treasured memory because smell has that capacity to work with our memory and our minds to leave a great impression. What did it smell like to be in the temple? What did it smell like to be in the tabernacle setting? There's, well, anywhere you've got that many animals, there's going to be a smell, isn't there? 
But as they're sacrificing the animals on the altar, they bring the, the animals and uh, they've, they, they've skinned them and they lay the entire corpse of the animal on the altar. See, we know that what that smells like in the south because as soon as it really starts to warm up here, what are you going to smell every time you go outside? Somebody's got steaks on the grill. Somebody, I, I, I want an invitation to somebody's house for supper because, oh, that smells good. Part of the idea of skinning the animal would be, well, you know, if, if you've ever been too close to that grill or set it off a little early and your hair, your, your skin was singed, does that smell good? Not at all. That's a terrible smell. As we look at some of these sacrifices, we'll see that there's, there's different kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. There's different purposes and even different scents. God is the one receiving the sacrifice. God is the one who looks down from heaven and inhales and breathes in deeply as he observes, as he watches, and as he accepts the worship and the sacrifice that is given. All the way back in Genesis chapter 8, as Noah is, is dealing with the aftermath of the flood, and you remember he builds that altar in worship after they've left the ark. He builds an altar, chapter 8 and verse 21. Then Noah built the altar. He took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. So Noah has, has put all these animals on the altar and God, God breathes in the smell. And what effect does that have on God? He smelled the pleasing aroma and he said in his heart, never again. It gets God's attention when there is a good smell on the altar. Just like you and I, our attention is grabbed when we step outside and we smell in the air, someone has got good food on the grill, God notices the good smell on the altar. And of course with Him, it's not just about the particular cut of meat that's on the altar or anything like that, but there will be more as we dig more deeply into this picture of what's really happening in the idea of sacrifice. There are all sorts of different sacrifices. There's two main categories of sacrifice in the Old Testament when it regards regarding the sacrificial animals. There is first the whole burnt offering. When we think of sacrifice and its purpose in the Old Testament, perhaps we think of, of offerings for sin. And this is, this is a second category, offerings for sin. The first kind that God talks about is the whole burnt offering. Uh, it has uh, the entire animal is put on the altar. This is not one where the priests get their piece and everybody gets their share. The entire animal goes on the altar. Uh, that would be described in the book of Leviticus as the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering. Maybe you've heard some of these terms. Or maybe, maybe we've just fallen asleep as we've read the book of Leviticus. Hopefully in this lesson we will, we will come to appreciate a little bit more of what's actually going on in an Old Testament book like that. Things that are very unfamiliar, but things that actually lay a foundation for who we are in God's sight in the New Covenant. That second kind of sacrifice, if you have the, these, these pleasing aroma, sweet savor, good-smelling sacrifices over here, you have a second category called the most holy sacrifices. They're the ones that deal with sin, and really there's, there's nothing that smells good about that. There's nothing pleasing to God in a sacrifice for sin, because what does that represent? If we have to have a sacrifice for sin, what does that say about us? 
it, it speaks to our sin. It speaks to our failure. The first kind of sacrifice that was this uh, pleasing aroma, sweet-smelling sacrifice, it really carries more of the idea of, of worship. God, I'm, I'm giving everything to you. All that I am is yours. That smells beautiful to God. And although he accepts the second kind of sacrifice because it's often needed, he accepts sacrifices for sin, wouldn't God, let me ask you this, wouldn't God rather that we never had to offer a sacrifice for sin? What would God rather see in us? Would he rather see consecration and devotion to him or contrition for sin? He would rather that we had never sinned at all. And so these two sacrifices, two, two different categories of sacrifice, have different purposes and different meanings as we look through the Old Testament. The, uh, the burnt offering, which is probably the most common. It's the one we encounter earliest in Scripture, and it's repeated over and over. Uh, even, even in the days of Abraham, and we just read the days of Noah, uh, probably all the way back into Adam, this is, the, this is usually the sacrifice that's offered, the burnt offering, a sacrifice not of not of contrition and, and, and forgiveness for sin, but of worship to God. This one was, was put into the Jewish system. When Moses received the law, things were, were categorized and laid out. This is the kind of sacrifice that was to be offered every morning and every evening as they had this sense of a continual burnt offering. And it was supposed to communicate something regular about the people of Israel and something that was, was baked into their very DNA and essence that they were continually giving themselves in worship to God, that they were continually devoting themselves and regularly giving themselves to Him. This whole burnt offering, as we get to the book of Leviticus, it's the one that's listed first. And maybe just maybe God is listing these sacrifices in some kind of order of importance. The ones that He would rather have first are the sacrifices of worship. At least those are the ones that He describes first. There was a fire on the altar, uh, or fire in the censer that burned continually, that they would bring that fire then to the altar and light the fires. What do you suppose it means that there is a holy and consecrated fire that burns continually in the camp of Israel? It's the presence of God that's with them all the time. And they take that fire and they use it to light the altar and the altar, what the altar and what is on the altar represents their heart, their devotion, and their consecration to God as they are giving themselves to Him. A burnt offering, probably to the people around Israel, would seem, would seem kind of like a waste. You take that beautiful steak that you have that you've, you've, you've lovingly marinated or prepared or you've picked just the right one with all the right marbling, you take that perfect and spotless animal and you lay it on the altar and, and, and it begins to smell good and, and you begin to say, well, it's, it, just in a few minutes it ought to be ready. What, would, what do you think you'd, you'd say to your spouse if your spouse was the one tending the grill and you let that steak stay on there for, say, 30 minutes at high heat? What a waste. You're not allowed to do this again. Because in our minds, if we're not going to consume it, then it's been a waste. But the sacrifice that we're talking about tonight, the whole burnt offering, it was not eaten by the priest. It was not eaten by the worshiper. It was on the altar, and it was completely consumed in the fire. 
And do you suppose the people around Israel, as they watched these sacrifices being offered, do you suppose they said, man, what a waste? Don't you, don't you people realize you're taking the very best animals that you have and you're putting them on a, and, you're, and you're, going, you're going beyond well done. You're going to just ashes to where the thing falls through the grates of the altar. And it's not a waste. Here's the point, one of the, the greatest lessons from the whole burnt offering. It is not a waste to be consumed in the praise of God. The, the, the animal and its essence and, and the worshiper who is represented by the animal, he's not wasted. But the idea is that, that what's on the altar is fumed up to heaven in the smoke and God, God breathes in what is there and all that it represents. And does God say what a waste? Or does God smile? And God accepts the heart of the worshiper as he accepts the sacrifice that has been given And so there's lessons as you and I begin to think about our lives being spent in the service of God. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 9 says, The priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a whole burnt offering, as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to God. There are different kinds of sacrifices. We've said that, and they all communicate something different. This idea of the whole burnt offering, not just in parts, but the whole burnt offering, says what to God? If I am am exchanging my place with this this animal, and the animal is being skinned, and, and the entirety of the beast is put on the altar, what does that say to God? How much of myself am I giving to him? All of me. Just like that animal. All of him is on the altar. So you go back to... Maybe this will help us make a little sense of Cain and Abel. When Abel offered his sacrifice, what did his sacrifice communicate to God? God, all that I am belongs to you. The whole burnt offering is what Abel offered. Now, Cain, he offered a little bit different kind of sacrifice, didn't he? He had worked hard, and out of the results of his work, the fruit of his labor, he offered God some of And maybe even all is what he was communicating. God, you can have my stuff. You can have my belongings. All that I have is yours. Well, that's significant. But what did Abel communicate? Not just all that I have is yours, but all that I am is yours. You remember that old joke you've heard uh, about the, the different animals discussing breakfast and what's involved in their contribution. And the chicken says, you know, I'm, I'm glad to contribute a few eggs. And the cow says, I'm glad, glad to contribute the milk. And the pig says, what? Is he really glad to contribute just a, Can he contribute just a little bit of bacon? It's all or nothing for him. And I think that's really some of what's going on with Cain and Abel. Cain is, is willing to tell God, you can have my stuff, but me, I reserve for myself. I'm not yet ready to offer the whole burnt offering of course these old testament figures and pictures represent shadows of the new covenant shadow is a neat way of of the new testament describing the old and uh you know if, if the lights were real bright in here i realize they're adjusted for our convenience but if the light was real bright and i was to hold this up uh, and it was to be between the the light source and the floor what would the shadow look like on the ground could you, could you tell what was in my hand? You could tell a little bit. 
If, if you were to make some educated guesses, you might be able to tell that it was a book. At least it was something rectangular. Could you tell what color it is? No. Could you tell how big it is? Because if I, if I bring it up higher, the shadow on the ground will get higher. If I bring it down lower, of course, it'll contract. The shadow gives some information, doesn't it? But it does not at all give a clear and distinct picture. One thing that the shadow is good for, if I have a rectangular Bible, will I ever get a circular shadow? The shadow will not lie. It will always tell the truth. And so what we see in the shadow will be true and it will help us to understand the object, the reality that casts the shadow, even if it can't give us all of the detail and all of the particular insight into the shadow. So it's useful, but there's so much more to dig into and there's so much more to understand about the reality than we can learn from the shadow. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 17, Paul writes, these things, he's talking about new moon, Sabbath, all these things that come out of the Old Testament, these things are but a shadow of the things to come and the substance belongs to Christ. Well, here's something that helps us understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New. What has to come first, folks? The substance, the reality that casts the shadow, or the shadow? Can you have shadow without reality, without an object? So which came first? Jesus and all that he represents, or the Old Testament? The Old Testament came second, didn't it? Jesus, the reality, comes first. He, is, he has always been God's plan. And everything that we read about in the Bible points either forward to Him or looks back to Him as He is everything to the Christian. Hebrews chapter 10, first verse in that chapter, the law has but a shadow of the good things that are to come instead of the true form of these realities. And it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered uh, every year, make perfect those who draw near. And now we have a little bit of interesting interplay between the old and the new because he says the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, those shadowy sacrifices that tell us the truth about Jesus but don't contain the whole picture... He says, by those sacrifices, the bulls and the goats, no one was ever forgiven. No one was ever made perfect by those. And yet if you go back and you read through the Old Testament, you might read at the end of Leviticus 4 as it describes the sin sacrifice and it says, and that man went away forgiven. Well, he wasn't forgiven. Hebrews 10 says, by that sacrifice of the bull or the goat or whatever animal he had. So, how was he forgiven? Any Hebrew who has ever forgiven, any person who has ever been forgiven by God in the history of humanity has always been forgiven on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus. Who came first? Jesus came first. And in the mind and the plan of God, as soon or before, before God ever said, let there be light, wasn't the sacrifice of Jesus already planned out in his mind? Wasn't that his established reality? And if God says it's going to happen, you can go to the bank on that, can't you? And so God is able to forgive their sins in the Old Testament in consideration of what? In consideration of the sacrifice of Jesus that well, hadn't taken place yet chronologically, not from our vantage point, but from God who was and is and is to come from God who exists outside of time and who, from God who says this will happen, 
Uh, he's able to forgive their sins. He's able to do this on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus. So I said we were going to look at, at this one concept in the New Testament of, of the living sacrifice, which, which builds from this idea of the, the whole burnt offering. Of course, we're familiar with Romans chapter 12, aren't we? Uh, this, is, this is one of those verses that, that always comes to our mind that probably we have memorized that, that, is, that, that speaks to so much of the Christian experience and is something that we should aspire to. Where Paul says, in view of God's mercy, I appeal to you, brothers, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Well, it begins something by saying, in view of the mercies of God, and of course, if you're jumping into the 12th chapter of a book, it probably stands to reason that Paul expects you to have read the preceding 11 chapters. And we don't have time to do all that. If, if you're in uh, Jerry Canfield's Sunday morning Bible class, we're, we're getting there. And he's doing a good job of, of unpacking the gospel as it's recorded in the book of Romans. But, but the gist of it is this. Paul says the gospel, chapter 1, is what? It's God's power to save. And so the rest of the book is an unpacking of that very idea that God has the power and God has the means to save us. And, and, he, and he begins to use language as he, as he reaches into their own history. Uh, one of my favorite descriptions of, of God that's in chapter 4 as, as he is describing how God saved Abraham. He says, Abraham was given a promise that he would have children, he would have descendants, but Abraham was as good as what? Abraham was as good as dead just by virtue of his age. And, and at least if, if Abraham himself wasn't dead yet, the, the opportunity for him to have children and to extend his line to have those descendants, uh-uh, it was gone. Abraham was as good as dead. The line stopped with him. But the language of the text says, God who calls things that are not such as they are is able to give life to the dead. And I love that. God who is able to call things that are not. Abraham, who is not a father. God says, Abraham, you are the father of many nations. He's able to call things that aren't such as they are. How is he able to do that? Well, because he controls all things. He, he holds all things in his hand. Last week we talked about the power of God that he gives us, that he works towards us to accomplish whatever goals he puts in front of his people. And here is a prime example. Abraham, do you trust God that he will make you a father of many nations? Yes. And that faith is credited to him as righteousness. And so, so he begins to, to move forward in history and he says, if, if Abraham was saved that way, then you and I are saved the same way as we follow in the footsteps that Abraham, our father, left for us. And we are saved by our faith, by our trust in Jesus, this, this obedience of faith that he'll mention at the beginning and end of Romans so he's, he's unpacked all this beautiful picture of how God saves us. The righteousness that is now made manifest apart from the law uh, for those who believe. And now in view of God's mercy. He's already talked about the wrath of God, the salvation of God, all those things. And now he moves on to an entirely different section of the book. As he says, having put a nail in that coffin, having, having already nailed that one down so that we know we are saved 
by the mercy of God, I want you to take a big picture survey of, of what God has done and then ask yourself a question. What shall we do with it? So in view of the mercies of God, I appeal to you, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice for sin has already been paid, hasn't it? That's Jesus. You and I couldn't offer a a significant sacrifice for sin even if we wanted to. So what we're talking about here is not a sin sacrifice. This is the sacrifice of the whole burnt offering. That picture that, that puts the entire animal on the altar representative of the worshiper. He says, I want you to go ahead and just climb up on the altar yourself. And guess what? If God gets all of me, that's what the whole burnt offering communicates, doesn't He get all my stuff too? Doesn't He get all of my, my worry and my concern and my love? Doesn't He get everything that I am if all that I am is His? And so God is asking for all of us, requiring really all of us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And I want to be careful here because it's probably not a good idea for preachers to regularly say, scratch something out of your Bible. Uh, But if you want to do it in pencil and check me at home, this will be good for you. If your Bible says something along those lines of this is your spiritual act of worship, at least put a question mark next to that. Because the words in Greek there are not spiritual and and worship, but it is logical or reasonable service. You remember in in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus and and Satan are going a couple of rounds there in in Jesus' wilderness temptations, and, and he says, Jesus, if you'll, just, if you'll just serve me, we'll be okay. I'll take care of all this tribulation stuff. And Jesus says, no, no. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. They're, they're two different words, aren't they? Well, the word that's used by Paul here is that word, serve him. The idea is not spiritual. I really don't know where spiritual entered into some people's idea of how to translate this one. But the word is reasonable, logical. How does he say this? He says, I want you to look at all that God has done for you. In view of God's mercy, you present your body as a living sacrifice. This is the only response that makes sense. This is the only logical and reasonable thing for you to do. If God has given all for you, for you to give all for him. This is what makes sense. So I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies If you put the emphasis on the other syllable of present, what do you end up with? Present. Make a gift of yourself to God. God wants to receive all that you are. Give yourself to Him. That was the first stage in the the Old Testament rituals. You would bring your animal up to the temple. and, And when I was a kid first hearing these stories, I... I kind of thought it was like standing in line at some government office that you just went up there and, and maybe you took a ticket and they, until they called your number and it was just kind of an impersonal thing. I dropped my animal off and I was done. But, but the idea is it, when you walked up to the temple, of course, you have your, your animal in tow, one that you have brought with you all the way from home, from, from your home flock and your home herd, and you've brought this animal, and the very first thing you do is you present the animal to God. You make a presentation. It is now gifted to God. 
And whose is it now? Well, it's his. And he allows you to use it as a sacrifice. There's something in there about giving ourselves first to God and then being used for his purposes that's digging deep into this text. Present your bodies as this living sacrifice. It's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only reasonable way to serve God. The idea of living sacrifice almost runs counter to what sacrifice in the Old Testament is about. Because once the life was given, then it was done, and we had to move on to other things. But here, it's a life that is, is lived in perpetual sacrifice to God. A life that continually smells good to Him. So what is it about a life that God sees our life and He inhales deeply and He smells something pleasing? If God were to, to hover over your life and inhale, what would it smell like? That's almost a goofy question unless we've come out of this background that we've dealt with here. God wants to smell the pleasing aroma. He wants to smell this life of worship, this life of service. What does that look like? Does God, does God really need our service? Does he really need our worship? Does, does he need anything that we could give him? Isaiah chapter 1, we'll begin with this, this, uh, these words. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. What is to me this multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. Uh, God uh, required all these sacrifices in the Old Testament of Israel, but here in Isaiah he says, I, you know, I, I've had enough of them. How do you suppose God gets to the point where he said, I've had enough of these burnt offerings? The burnt offering is supposed to communicate what? All that I am is yours. The whole animal goes on the altar that represents everything that I am as the worshiper. The animal stands in for me. God is not mocked. We've heard that before, haven't we? What you sow, you shall also reap. Do you think God is fooled by, by these people in Israel who would put the burnt offering on the altar, who would go through that motion and say, communicate to God in their actions and in their sacrifice, God, all that I am is yours. And so they've got God's attention. Here, just, just, I know God's everywhere and he knows everything, but this is the picture. They've got his attention and he goes up and... Yeah, that smells terrible. Is God mocked? Can you fool God? Can, can, can you and I take a piece of meat out of the refrigerator and it look fine and you open up the package and it just hits you? That is rotten. Somehow in our family, I'm the one that always has to smell the stuff. Sarah won't, won't do that. This is God. You won't make a fool of him. You can't trick him into accepting your sacrifice. Hebrews uh, chapter 8, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 8. The whole burnt offering finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Where people have failed to keep their lives pure 
where people have failed to keep their lives consecrated, where, where people have made a, made a lie, when they've offered the burnt sacrifice with no intention of their lives reflecting that commitment and that consecration, here's what God sees in Jesus. Hebrews 10, verse 8, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Jesus said, Here I am, God. And and to really get to the heart of the matter, Jesus says that it's not about just offering the sacrifices and the bulls and the goats. If, If you wanted more of those, you could have always commanded more of those. But here I am, I have come to do what? Come to do your will. And by by focusing on that, by selecting that, by emphasizing that, he establishes that doing away with the first. And yes, it's about covenants, but it's also about really the heart of the matter. What was God really after when he communicated to Israel and to the generations before that in the days of the patriarchs? What was he trying to get them to understand when he outlined the process of the whole burnt offering? Not just had to put on a good barbecue but he was trying to get them to see the importance and the depth of the reality of offering the entire self on the altar and where people failed to pick up on that for generation and generation and actually lived in rebellion and tried to fool God in that process Jesus comes and he says I'll be honest I will be transparent. I will be pure. I will be dedicated. I will be consecrated. The beautiful thing about the life of Jesus is that He never stood in need of a sin sacrifice because He was always consecrated. He was always devoted. His life was what? It was a continual burnt offering. All the time He said, God, all that I have is Yours. And that's the example that we have in Him. King Saul Back in 1 Samuel, you remember he, uh, he has an obligation as king to lead the people into battle. That's his job. But before he does so, this is from 1 Samuel chapter 15, before he does so, he figures it would be a good idea to offer a sacrifice. And so he looks around for Samuel, he looks around for this, this, this prophet, priest figure, and, and, and he's not there. And so in a hurry, Saul does what? He goes ahead and he offers the sacrifice anyway. And what does Samuel say as, the, as he's reviewing the whole process? Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, we'll begin reading in verse 22. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? See, Saul had gone in and he was supposed to make sure all of the enemies of God were destroyed. And yet when Samuel finally gets there, he says, you know, as I look around the camp, I I see treasures that you've taken. I, I hear the noise of the animals from the enemy's camp that you've just taken for yourselves. Where was the obedience in this? And Saul says, well, we were obedient. We offered a sacrifice. No, no, no. It was never about just offering the sacrifice if the sacrifice wasn't tied to what? Wasn't tied to the heart. If it did not communicate the truth. And Samuel says something very, very important. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
And friends, that's definitely something worth underlining and putting a star next to in your Bible to hear the words of God. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you as king. He offered the right sacrifice, but what was God looking for? He was looking for Saul to offer his entire self. Saul, could you say, all that you are belongs to God? Now, I think it's interesting that as you read through most of the story of Saul, and he talks to Samuel, he'll say, as was commanded by the Lord your God. I don't know that he ever, if he does, it's very seldom that he says the Lord my God. It's always Samuel, you and your God. Does, does God say anything different to us today? Is that lesson still there? That, that for, all the, for all the externals that we could offer Him, for all the things that we could say, for all of the sacrifices of praise that could come from our lips, isn't He always still most concerned with the inward man? with the truth that our lives are presenting, with what's coming out from our heart. You think Jesus says, this is, this is it. This is the first and greatest commandment. What is it? Love the Lord your God with just a piece of yourself. Love the Lord your God with, with some of yourself or with your stuff. Love the Lord your God with your heart, with your mind, with your soul, with your strength. With all that you are, love God. And folks, if we could just get one commandment right, I'm glad I'm not a Jew that had ten, but even just tackling the one, isn't that a challenge? Isn't that a, the pursuit of a lifetime to submit myself to God and to say, all that I am is yours. I am a living sacrifice. And if I always say yes to God in the way that Jesus did, then that second verse of Romans chapter 12, then you will be able to, to approve what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and pleasing. If I always say yes to God, then what am I being? I'm being good. I'm being acceptable. I'm being pleasing to God because that's what a living sacrifice does. Already given to God on the altar. So friends, do you love God with all that you are? Not just your stuff. Not just partially. But are you a living sacrifice? If tonight we can pray with you so that you can put your whole self on the altar, so that you can take that step to, to be there completely given and surrendered to God, then we'd like to be able to do that. If you have any need at all, let us know what that is as we stand and as we sing.